theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning, theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you? I'm doing really well, and I am looking forward to talking to a dean in a sister institution. Yes, Dr. Tom Fillion, the dean from Roosevelt University. He's awesome. I've had the opportunity to work with him on a number of committees. I find him as a great friend. He's also, you know, just such a wonderful colleague, and he's doing some amazing things at Roosevelt University and beyond. And he's actually doing some things that really impact the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is the teacher shortage. So Tom Fillion is Dean of the College of Education and Associate Provost of Strategic Initiatives at Roosevelt University. Prior to becoming Dean in 2013, Tom served as Associate Dean and Chair of Teacher Preparation Programs at Roosevelt. Earlier in his career, he was an Assistant Professor of English and Assistant Director of the English Education Program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He is a former middle school reading teacher, the author of more than 20 articles and reports on topics such as teacher research, portfolio pedagogy, and collaborative learning, and has obtained over $2 million in external grant funding, including a recent grant to establish the first undergraduate teacher residency program in Illinois. We will have another conversation about grants and grant writing, I'm sure. Yeah. Tom, Tom received his BA in English from Fordham University and his MA in English and PhD in English and education from the University of Michigan. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. This is a real pleasure. Good morning, Tom. And anytime we interview an English teacher, they already have bonus points from Amy. <laughs> Did you happen to teach middle school at any point? Oh, yes. Yes. Double points. Double points. (laughs) Excellent. We were all middle school teachers at some point. So you get double points. I am just always fascinated. I'm happy to be amongst you, call you as a friend and a colleague. You're just so accomplished and happy to have you here today. Yeah, same here. Thanks, Joy. I love working with you. Your, your spirit is always so uplifting. I truly appreciate it. So today we're going to talk about how the teaching profession is evolving in the wake of a teacher shortage. And this is not just a shortage in our area, but we know that this is a national shortage. As an educator preparation provider, in your opinion, 
how is the teacher preparation evolving in the wake of this shortage? And I have a follow-up question to that. You know, I just want you to really describe the breadth and the depth of the shortage. Short term, where do you see the shortage in the next two years in light of where we are because of the pandemic? And also long-term, where do you see us? Yeah, thanks. That's a great first question. I was thinking about it a little bit, and I guess where I would start is to say that one of the things that really concerns me is that it's not evolving. So like if I'll, I'll put on my English teacher hat, if something is evolving, it's sort of adapting to circumstances, but you still recognize it as kind of the creature it was. And what worries me is that teacher preparation is, is actually very fractured right now. And we have a lot of different routes to becoming a teacher, some of which require absolutely no training, some of which require extensive rules and regulation and, and a variety of things in between. I don't think we have a clear sense of where teacher preparation is going yet. And I think that's true for a lot of things in the country, to be honest. It's not just, I don't see this as particular to the preparation of teachers. I think it's true for the preparation of lawyers and leaders in, in business. I think it's true for a lot of industries right now. We're just not sure exactly how we're going to meet the needs that we know we will have in the future. Well, you, Joy, and I know that higher education has a reputation of moving at a snail's pace. Sometimes it's, it's just glacial sometimes. And sometimes the regulations change and spin us in circles pretty quickly. But what are ways that you can think that our education providers can be progressive about teacher preparation? Yeah, I guess the, the main thing to me is, is two things. I believe that things, can't, things do move at a very slow pace, actually. And I think one response that I've seen in higher education throughout my time in the field is that people therefore duck change and innovation. And that can be because they don't want to prepare the 70-something page proposal to do something different, or they don't really want to get into the debates that they know they'll have because people have very strong and different views on what's the right way to prepare a teacher. So I, th I think by and large, we tend to avoid engaging with change. And so therefore, I think what is needed is actually kind of the opposite attitude, to be honest. I think that processes do exist. They are challenges. There are challenges there to make change happen. But I don't think it's as glacial and slow as people think. I think there are more supports often than people realize. And I also think the things that we fear most, I'll put something out there that I know we've been engaged with, for example, partnership with for-profit companies. In higher ed, that's something that we really look askance at, at least in the, in the education field. I think there, there are actually some opportunities there and, it, and, and, and we don't necessarily have to approach things as kind of explicitly, either we do this or we don't. I think that just kind of leads us into continued stasis and does no one any particular good. And I think it's good to be open, therefore, to these ideas, to be looking at how things are done outside. I've been immensely impacted by 
some of the connections I have to the tech industry. And it's not unusual for institutions of higher ed to partner tech companies as they deliver graduate programming, for example. I think, you know, knowing that says to me, oh, this isn't like a crazy idea. It's just we haven't really applied it in the field of education. And maybe there's some potential there. I'm not trying to make an argument that we should do this. I'm just using that as one, like, I know that's a hot button issue that would get people going. Right. But to me, I think you want, I want my ears to be open when these kinds of concepts are being debated. And I don't want to foreclose the conversation too early. And I think people do, I think they foreclose the possibility of change and they foreclose the possibility of innovation because they have some entrenched ideas about what's the right way to do things. Yeah, and I applaud you on that because I do see that you're very objective when we come to views like that. And Tom, you know, I find that when you are in these conversations with other educator preparation providers and you're in conversation at the state level, that you're very objective going into these conversations and very open. And I think in order for us to have the type of change that we need, we need to have these conversations. We need to be very open. But something that has had little change in teaching, we know, is the diversity of teachers. So that has had yes. very little change. And I can, <laughs> I remember 25 years ago, what, as I'm writing my dissertation and reading things about diversity and Gates and things, it talked about by 2020, that still 80% of our teachers would be white teachers, right? And here we are, and it still it rings true. I was thinking to myself 25 years ago, that can't possibly be true. And so some of the this recent release about the teacher shortage and disparity, it shows that 83% of teachers are white. And while only 49% of students are white. And so we know that the student population is becoming more diverse every year. And now the white student population is the minority, but yet the teacher population is still 83% white. And then 6% of the teachers are black, while 17% of the students are black. Mm -hmm. This in itself shows great disparity. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing to me that we're still here in 2021. And what's more upsetting is the statement that was made in this release. It said that black students are three times more likely to receive an education from a teacher without certification. And to me, this goes beyond the teacher shortage, right? You know, it's not just a matter of a teacher shortage. Why isn't there that teacher shortage across the board? This tells me that white teachers don't necessarily want to work in predominantly black schools. Mm -hmm. What does this information tell you, Tom? And how do we bring equity in the classroom amongst the teachers that we have yeah. and that we're preparing? Oh boy, thanks for the easy question. Um, I, two quick responses and I'd love to like follow up too and maybe just dig a little deeper. One is, I agree with you absolutely. I got started in teaching and in 1985 and made a decision sort of to step away from becoming a professor of English and decided to go teach in New York City and ended up in a middle school in the Bronx with minority population. We were about 60% Puerto Rican, 40% African-American. 
and all low income. And at the time, New York City was filling positions with people like myself, people who did not have training to become teachers. And they were doing it in those kinds of schools. And to be honest, I don't think anything's changed about that. And I assume you could make an argument that it's gotten worse, that we're a bit more segregated and we're, we're not meeting the needs as, as much as, as we should be. And I think a lot of that has to do, speaking as a white male, with I think the erosion of the concept of service, to be honest. I think when I came, you know, out of graduate school with this mission, with this mission to to kind of try to actually address the needs where they exist, as opposed to kind of myself climbing the perceived ladder of success, which would be getting a job in a in a college or university, that was probably influenced most by my Jesuit training as an undergraduate at Fordham University in, in New York. And, and also by a larger sort of uh, political consciousness that I had developed at the University of Michigan it, through interactions with professors. And I don't know that it, it feels to me, I, I don't have evidence of this, but it feels to me like that sense of service on the part of middle class, upper middle class whites to, to go out into the world is, is being eroded. I think Teach for America was able to tap into it, but even they truly struggle. And I think they've also really kind of pivoted in the way that they approach their recruitment now too. I, I think they're actually majority black and other groups, BIPOC groups. So yeah, I agree with you totally about this idea that we're not doing justice, the justice work that we should be doing. I'd push back just a little bit I just would just add that I don't think this is just a white issue. I know plenty of African-American parents who choose not to send their kids to the public schools. And I know plenty of African-American middle-class students who do not want to teach in some of our highest need districts, yeah. right? You're, you're absolutely right, because yeah. we also know that African-American teachers, they leave the teaching profession faster than any other ethnic group. So we know that it goes beyond white teachers. And I'm just hoping that, you know, this introduction of culturally responsive teaching standards will somehow make a difference, will change empathy so that teachers will be more open to the ideas. But then that also shows that we need work in those schools to make those schools more attractive, more appealing and more supportive. For yes, yes, yes. I, I'd also see like, like to see more, I'm a big believer that we really need to support our institutions. Think, when I look at the concept of service, what, what I hear a lot at Roosevelt, I don't know if you see this at Governor's State, I've interacted with undergraduates who I think have great potential to be teachers. And when they talk to me about the things they want to do in the future, they want to start up their own nonprofit. Or they want to do something else that's kind of techie as well. I think the, the current the student who's coming out of colleges thinks in this way about service because we have such a lack of trust and respect for things like public schools, you know, government, police, etc. You could go on and on down the line. Law. I don't think there's a single area that hasn't had confidence eroded 
in terms of the way the public looks at it. And I think somehow, um, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can actually start to make the pivot on this. And I think the pandemic may help us in this regard too, making people realize, hey, what's really essential? We need nurses. We need teachers. We need informed police officers or security officers, you know, people who are respectful and going to work with everyone that they serve. We need people to engage and to renew these really important institutions in our society. You know, maybe some of the things that you're talking about, and you're correct, young people are thinking more socially just, but they're also entrepreneur. They have this entrepreneur spirit, right? Yes. And so teaching to me is the perfect profession. Yes. And, and to remarket that. Yes. All the things that teaching, I mean, you're an actor, you're an entrepreneur. You can bring so many things into the classroom. You bring community in the classroom. You're the social worker. My yep. goodness, you're the mentor. And so the things that you see these young people gravitating to, even including social media, I mean, teaching has all of these yes. great elements. So it may be a matter of us uh, remarketing. And, you know, I hate to say this, but, you know, it's almost like, how do you make teaching sexy again, right? Yes, yes. Attractive. And right. so that people are gravitating to. And I think that that's part of our job. When I worked in, I was a principal in Arizona in the late 90s, and only 10% of our teachers were certified. You know, that's how bad it was. And you talked about how it was when you started in some areas. I mean, it was just horrible in Arizona because that's where people move to retire. Yes. You know, that's not where people move to grow children. And we had no pipeline to develop certified teachers. So I got some grant money so that I could put it back into the teachers that I had. I had great people working for me that were not trained. And mm -hmm. so I put effort there. And I can remember when my husband started teaching, he was teaching in, in the 70s and 80s in Harvey. They had mm -hmm. a huge initiative. He's still friends with a dozen African-American males that he started teaching with. And I yes. often ask, I say, how was that possible back then? And it's not possible now. Yes. Yes. Well, and I want to I want to return to the idea of pathways to licensure. But I want to piggyback on what Joy is saying about yes. retaining teachers. Yeah. What can higher education institutions do to support and retain great teachers. I, I couldn't agree. What you just said, Joy, is brilliant. In response, Amy, I would say, so both Joy and I are on the licensure board. So that means we kind of set the rules and regulations for the preparations of the preparation of teachers in Illinois. I think we have to continue the work we're engaged in right now of trying to eliminate or reduce regulation that saps the creativity and joy and artistry from teaching that you're talking about, Joy. I think that's our job. Without that kind of regulatory action, I think we stay in the highly regulated, almost joyless version of teaching that really was predominant, I would say, from 2010 to, you know, you could say it's still going on, but I think it was really in the heyday of, uh, to be honest, the Obama administration, you know, uh, 2008 to 2016. 
Um, since then, we really haven't had any kind of leadership. But before that, we did have a lot of federal leadership and the emphasis was on evaluation and learn student outcomes and student learning and the kinds of things you're talking about, Joy, were there, but that's not what people were hearing. And then I think the second thing we can do just as teacher educators, as people working with young people in universities, Amy, is this is really simple, <laughs> but I say it all the time, focus on joy. Young beginning teachers will not be creative and innovative and engaging if they don't see joy in their professors at the university and in the classrooms where they're, where they're working. That has to be step number one. That has to be paramount. Yeah. It does, it has to be paramount because we are our best recruiters, right? And if students see that joy and that enthusiasm from you, then that's what I wanna be. Fortunately for me, I didn't have any African-American teachers. I didn't know that I could become a teacher. And it wasn't until, I, I didn't have an African-American teacher until graduate school. And so it wasn't something that I thought about. So for that reason, we need to increase diversity so that we can see ourselves in the classroom. But also I think all students need diversity in their teachers, right? Absolutely. And so that we have this empathetic society growing up. So it's just, it's just so important. There's just so many wonderful initiatives. And uh, I know Amy's going to talk about some of those things. And I hope that Amy shares some of the great initiatives that she has implemented. But I just love some of the things that Tom is doing. And I think this is an opportunity for us to learn from him. And we are talking to Dr. Tom Fillion, the Education Dean of Roosevelt University about the teaching profession and how it is evolving in the wake of a teacher shortage. So I wanna to return to this idea of entrepreneurship and innovation. How can we infuse this innovation into promising pathways to licensure that ensure quality, that add diversity, that expedite the need to get teachers into the classroom and stay there? Yes, yes. Well, that sounds like a great invitation to talk a little bit more about our te undergraduate teacher residency program that you mentioned. And I really am excited about this. Joy knows she hears me talk about it frequently as really a transformative experience for me personally. And I think I like to think of it as a model for what we need to have more of to evolve the profession in the right way or in a better way. We have a new teacher residency program in collaboration with the Chicago Public Schools where we are helping their teaching assistants and paraprofessionals in special education and early childhood to go on and earn their bachelor's degree and also become a licensed teacher in those same fields. And what I get really excited about with this initiative are a couple of things. One is the idea that we're actually targeting and tapping into the talents of a pool of teacher candidates who have already been in classrooms from something like two to 10 years, working side by side with licensed teachers. So they've got this understanding of schooling and learners that I think you're average or traditional teacher candidate doesn't have because their main interaction 
their main understanding of schools and classrooms is derived from being only a student in the classroom. These teaching assistants are in this in-between space of actually assisting licensed teachers. The, the other really exciting feature is that that workforce in Chicago public schools and nationally tends to be much more diverse than the pool of teacher candidates and also licensed teachers. So uh, almost all of the students that have enrolled in this program over the last two years are African-American and Latino. And so this is a really powerful way for us, I think, to start to kind of address the racial inequities that you've pointed out. And then the, the last thing that I'm really excited about is that there's really close partnership between Roosevelt and the Chicago Public Schools. So that means we're jointly actually reviewing candidates to determine whether they'll be accepted into the program, which means we have a lot of input from Chicago public schools about their qualifications. We get their recommendations for candidates that they think have the potential to become teachers. And I just love this idea that the school district has a way to kind of assert itself might be going too far, but you know, to have a voice in this process and to recognize that they're a key player in what we're, you know, what we're trying to do with preparing teachers. They're also financially backing that up. So they've worked out some remuneration for their employees where they get some money up front to help them pay for the costs of their education. They do have to pay that back later on, but that later on comes when they move into a licensed teacher position, which increases their, their pay on the salary scale. I like that because a CPS is being supportive of preparing the teachers they need. I like it B because the student is kind of involved in investing in him or herself and his or her development. That's a different model than what I hear from the typical teacher residency program which involves somebody who already has a bachelor's degree agreeing to come back and become a licensed teacher and they get a stipend and the stipend comes from the Gates Foundation or some other, maybe the federal government, it comes from some other entity. That's great. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but I'm saying there needs to be balance. We need to find ways of building into the system of employment in school district, these pathways. And I think that needs to be done in collaboration with institutions of higher education, Amy. It, it needs to be a pathway, a partnership around pathways with districts. Yeah, then it feels more like an investment, you know, so, yes. so I agree with that. And, you know, like Governor State University, we embrace partnerships. Amy is a strong proponent of working with IHEs. And so something that we do similarly that we're working on we're working with a South Suburban uh, school, predominantly, it's a Title I school, predominantly Black, and they have a severe teacher shortage, and we're trying to work on the future. So we're going to start in high school. We're going to work with middle schoolers. We're going to work with high schoolers, and we're going to prepare the high schoolers to be paraprofessionals. So the day they graduate, they can go into positions of being a paraprofessional and earn a salary while they're going to school to earn their teaching credentials. So we'll take the student to para and the para to a teacher. 
And so we're creating this pipeline and hopefully by the time they graduate and they're working five years, they'll be able to have some of their loans forgiven through the federal program. So we also want to create ways by which it's as least, so there's not a financial burden for the teachers, you know, when we consider what teachers get paid. And that's an entirely, that's an, another conversation. Yes. Yes. But so outside of the, of the residency program that you have, which I think is great, can you talk about the significance of your school partnership, especially working with urban and rural schools and working with a district like CPS is just awesome. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get any better than working with a school that has resources. What are some of the successful initiatives that have been implemented? And I'm particularly interested in some that can be replicated to scale. Yeah, that's a really good question. So. The first thought that comes to mind, and I guess we'll just see where this goes, is a lot of the partnerships that we've been doing have been around working with districts to prepare their licensed teachers. So it hasn't been teacher preparation so much as it's been teacher development. So for example, District 15, I know, is a Northwest suburban district. We've been helping them move their, have more elementary teachers who have the math, middle school math endorsement. And it's really helping to solve a problem that they had with having the right teachers prepare their students for you know, advanced algebra come freshman year of high school. Those kinds of partnerships have been more attractive to smaller districts because they're, it's less complicated to, to come up with that kind of game plan as opposed to like, how do I now meet your teacher shortage needs? and prepare future teachers. I guess I'll, I will say that one thing I found, and this goes back to maybe another strategy that's really important for higher ed, is to really embrace partnership. And I don't know that we've actually dug into, we all talk about partnership and we hear a lot of, we're urged in a lot of different settings to partner with districts. I don't know that we really talk about what that means exactly. And I think from my end, I think the way I've always tried to approach it is with a great deal of humility, recognizing that the expertise for preparing an effective teacher or for developing a licensed teacher into a better teacher often really resides in the district. I think there's a lot of untapped talent in the licensed teacher workforce. And so I think Anytime I've either had to or decided to engage a district in some kind of partnership talk, I approach it understanding that they actually have what I feel I need to be able to generate the best possible professional development program, whether it's initial teacher training or in-service teacher training. And I'm not sure that districts get that kind of humble or respectful attitude from higher education. And I'm basically drawing upon various statements that have been made to me by school districts. I think to go back where we started with this conversation, I think higher ed in general would prefer not to get too deep into partnership because it, it's complicated and you have to give up some authority. In general, I think there's skepticism about that. I think is the right way to put it. And I really think 
to be effective, we'll have to like work in different ways, uh, more in the kind of service oriented that I'm talking about. I agree. Um, it can't always be when we need something from them. I have found that the university cycle is a little different than the district cycle. We need certain things submitted in a time that might be a break or might be a super busy time for a school district. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you know, you, you talk about the nuances and you have, there's that skepticism, but what can a school district do to find and develop partnerships and what can universities do to make that task easier? What are some really tangible things that yeah. we can share with our listeners that will make it possible? Yeah, here's the concrete thing. And this comes out of the COVID experience and an experience I think we might've all had at conference, state conference this past fall, where basically we were urged by a school district administrator to really, really understand the why we are asking districts to bring in teacher candidates before student teaching. And that's really got my mind going. And some of the challenges we've had this fall and now this spring, having field experiences before student teaching all lead me to this tangible suggestion, Amy. Maybe what we need to do is just focus on that last year of teacher preparation programs, which in traditional programs means a student teaching experience, typically in the spring, and some kind of preparatory field experience in the semester before. Maybe what we need to do is just take out the other stuff, not, not eliminate the idea of trying to prepare them before that final year of a teacher preparation program, but retooling it in ways that we've had to experiment with through the COVID crisis, meaning we're, we're doing a lot more micro teaching, we're doing a lot more tutoring, we're doing a lot more watching a video and film and analyzing effective teaching. Maybe that's what we focus on in the first year of the program. And then we concentrate on partnerships with district. Joy, you both know what we often hear from the state and educational reformers is this message, year-long student teaching. Maybe the way we reframe that is year-long training. <laughs> and let's partner with the districts and just like focus with them. If you have needs, teacher shortages in your district, let's work so that we can bring a candidate to you who can spend one year there, a fall and a spring semester. We'll work with you to decide what they need to do and what's going to be best for them. I don't know that we necessarily have to call it a full year of student teaching. If a district wants that, we'll work with you on that, right? But if they have other ideas, we're open to that too. They can have field experiences. So long as we have that kind of minimal 10 to 15 week engagement where they're really serving as teachers. I think we're meeting the, the state education requirements. And I think we're also kind of creating that scaffold towards becoming a licensed teacher. They're having a fall semester where they're really engaged, perhaps student teaching, but not necessarily so. But they're in classrooms with teachers. They're staying in a district. Then they go to the student teaching level, you know, where they're like almost a co-teacher. And then they're moving into a licensed teacher right after that. If we could streamline things a little bit and really just ask districts to focus on that, we'd reduce their burden, which right now is immense 
all these different universities coming to them looking for 25, 50, 100. It really depends on what the program is like. Hours of experience, teachers get thrown into that. I think maybe there's an opportunity here so, to kind of back off and focus. Right. So it sounds so simple, but <laughs> it gets complicated. And Amy, I'm going to brag on Amy just a moment because Amy does have a, a, a teacher immersion initiative in working with our, one of our school partners her students would spend a year through their clinical experience. They would go there once a week for the entire day. The school gave us a classroom. This was yep. a strong partnership. Yeah. And this was for their clinical experience to a student teaching experience to possible hire. Yeah. And so by the time the candidate is there for that year, even before student teaching, there's that buy-in because it's a matter of getting to know the teachers, getting to know the students that you're working with and forming relationships. Okay. And this went so far as that one of the graduates actually joined us in a national conference and having this conversation. So we're going from a clinical experience to a student teaching experience to a okay. hiring experience to research. Promising, I, I just wanted to get past an initiative, Tom. Yeah. You know, and that's where my concern is. I want it to get beyond an initiative. Right. So we can say these are promising practices. Right. And develop these things to scale. Yeah. And that's where I think we need, what if, if I'm understanding what you're meaning by initiative, what you're looking for then is some kind of consortium. So yes. the problem comes if you do this, I do this, and we do it independently, and we do it in relationship only to select districts. I think what we need to figure out is how could we have some kind of say clearinghouse, you can use the CPS example since they're actually like 50 districts within one district, right? It's a big area. And if you had some kind of mechanism for knowing where the needs are, and then we could tap into that in some kind of more rational way and strategic way in collaboration with CPS, then we could figure out where can we institute this year long experience in different places. And then I think when you look at places not close to CPS, we have regional offices of education. And that seems to me a starting point for thinking about how can those offices be taken advantage of better to serve as clearinghouses or platforms for different institutions to connect, find placements. Here's the model. Everyone uses the model instead of like, the Roosevelt model or the GSU model. Let's try to get some more consistency. I think that's gonna to have to happen if we're gonna be more district responsive. I don't think it serves the interests of districts to have as much variation in the, in the details of what it means, what a clinical experience means as exists right now. I think we should be like the House and the Senate where we can't go home until we figure it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a nice, a summit of some sort, or maybe to go back, I mean, you think about the way systems evolve, Joy, maybe there is a grant proposal for us to do this in the South Metro region. And you basically try to create what we're talking about and get some funding from someone to support that with the idea of if we can show that this can work and be an improvement and better meet the needs of districts, better produce the kinds of diverse teachers that we need, or at least, and, and diverse aware as they teach, 
then it can be expanded across the state. You recently wrote in your uh, college newsletter about 2020. Uh-huh. Difficult as these experiences were and remain, they illuminate the world as it is, not as I want it to be. Nor will I forget the inspiring and courageous responses that so many people had to had to these unfortunate events. They are truly models of resilience and problem solving at its best. How do you plan to face 2021 as a problem solver? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Keep on chugging away at it. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I guess I'm taking off my educator hat a little bit and just like as a person, I think we all get overwhelmed at times and we also get complacent at times. And then at other times we get really, really motivated and and we get truly engaged. I generally try, I don't know if this is the best approach (laughs) to leadership, but I try not to say no too often because you don't know what's going to happen. So like if Joy says, well, next meeting, I'm going to like make you actually say what you just said or like take the next step and try to make this actually happen. Should I be saying no to that, even though it sounds like another responsibility that I would take on? No, I have a responsibility. I'm in a position of of leadership within a college and a university and actually the state too. And I think we, if we shy away from that, then we're we're not doing our job. So I, I don't know that there's anything new that I need to do strategically, except maybe what Joy's talking about here is to take the next step of trying to form this coalition of like-minded individuals with joy and you, you know, to try to create something that could actually solve the problems we've been talking about. These issues aren't new for joy and I to have a discussion about. We we need to do that, I think. And we we just can't shy, shy away from that and have to engage. It's been such a pleasure to have you with us today. And I know that we have talked We've solved all the world's problems. I think one step is having a podcast, having a way to voice these conversations and and that let people know that there are people working on solutions and we just need to uh, have direction and have lots of like-minded people working forward and moving forward. Yes. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think this is fabulous. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to connect with you and to all your listeners. I think this is a a brilliant idea. Kudos to you. And thank you for being my partner in crime, even through COVID. I'm looking forward to getting back to our partnership symposiums and things like that. But I think that even during this pandemic, we need to do what we can. So I'm looking forward to all the conversations and actually some action. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice.
Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. <laughs>